This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody out there, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we are here with you once again to have a little chat about the films of our lives. And we're back. We're back for a little break. Yes, they don't know that, but we took a break. Yeah, we, we, we prepped for the break. So we recorded a little bit in advance so that we could take two weeks off, which was only from the podcast, but we actually got some some light vacation time in there, too. Yeah. Uh, how was your break? It was good. I got um, it was mostly just house like moving in stuff, but it was it was really relaxing. I got to meet all the animals that hang out in my yard. Yeah. There's menagerie, there's rabbits, deer, like a groundhog family. There's a whole bunch of things out there. Wait, wait, um, wait, wait. Chauncey. You're talking about Chauncey. Does Chauncey have Chauncey. a family? Chauncey, as it turns out, has a family. He straight up, straight up played my ass because I'm like, one groundhog is fucking cute as hell. Look at his little (laughs) chunky butt moving around the lawn. Uh Uh-uh. The other day I was out there sitting on the porch and I saw a little baby groundhog. (gasps) And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cute. Then I saw another little baby. Then I saw another big groundhog. And I was like, you got a fucking family in here. So he has a partner. Well, has we don't partner. know. We don't know the status of of the partnership. Don't um, know. Two young children. <laughs> two young babies. Two young little baby children. So, okay, am I dumb? What do gophers do? Do they bury themselves? I think. What's, the, what's their vibe? <laughs> gophers are super fucking goth. They just bury themselves alive every day. <laughs> I feel like the only thing I really know about gophers is like Caddyshack. Was that a gopher in Caddyshack? Now, now I'm questioning whether or not there was a gopher in Caddyshack. No, I thought it was a gopher, but someone corrected me and said, because I posted a picture of it on Instagram. They said, oh, that's a groundhog. And groundhogs tunnel and burrow. So they're the ones, I think that's the Caddyshack one. Like they kind of make the holes okay, and then pop okay. up in the holes. So I went out and walked around the yard and it's like, yeah, his family's been tunneling all up in this piece. Well, well, you know, he's got to like teach his children the trade, the family business. Yeah, which is ripping up my fucking shit. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, the coast is clear. Come out and chew this fucking grass down to a nub. (laughs) Well, is there a way, is there like a safe way to like get him out of here? Like, can you bring them to like a home or something? Rehome them? (laughs) 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 I'm sorry, I'm just still stuck on gophers burying themselves and then being put in a home. 
home where they can just like, here's a nice little tub of dirt for you. You can just bury yourself all day. Oh, my God. Um, (laughs) There are humane ways to get rid of them. I don't mind them too much. I just don't want them in the front part of the yard. It would be fine if they burrowed in the back because I don't like hang out back there too much. Um, But one of the things you can do is put used kitty litter around the holes. Oh, and then, like, they won't come out of the hole, so you can kind of direct where they're going. Like, if you're like, all right, I'm going to block off all these sides so you don't come out on this side of any hole. And then... Why, so why don't you just do that, and then the hole they end up going to is in another town, in another <laughs> another place, you know? And they're just all like, I oh, wait, we, we traveled 2,000 miles. We didn't realize. I just want to see... If I don't see four little gopher bindles, little groundhog bindles, <laughs> as they're trudging away, I'm going to be so upset. None of it will be worth it until I see groundhog bindles. I know. And, and the, one of the babies is bringing his little ratty toy uh, bunny <laughs> rabbit that he drags under the ground on the ground floor, uh, like the floor of the hole that they have to travel through. Oh Lord! And the other baby has like a little blankie, <laughs> like a dirty little nub of a blankie, and it's just like tootling away with it. In and its then mouth. the father dies, and then the mother gets remarried <laughs> to a preacher, and the preacher tries to. I'm sorry, that's Night of the Hunter. I don't know why I was thinking that. Um, but there are there are also <laughs> there are also humane ways to get rid of them. Like you, they're like, oh, you can trap them in these cages, and then you just have to make sure you take them five to ten miles away. And I'm like, that is disorienting as fuck, and it seems really cruel to be like, one, let me take you away from your home, and two, hey neighbor, here's four fucking groundhogs. Your problem now. <laughs> Well, I'm sure I am for certain. And we are either one Kevin Bacon relations away from a gopher rescuer or some kind of groundhog (laughs) gopher rescuer. I know we are just I know these streets that you and I run in. I know the people that we know. So if there is anybody that actually knows what the fuck they're talking about, because we're just obviously uneducated about this. We we can't even get the animal right. Gopher, groundhog. I don't know. <laughs> I know. What what's a prairie dog? I mean, we could go far, far down this road. But if you do Ooh. actually know, you should email us at I saw what you did pot at gmail.com and you know, maybe we'll look it up. But yeah, yeah. I'll look it up. Um, and look anything to keep used kitty litter from being just flung about in my yard would be great. Because that's not a life I want to live. It's not a smell I want because they also burrow under the porch. So I'm like, I don't want to be laying used kitty litter under the porch where I sit and like have coffee in the morning. Come on. You don't want carrots, elegant poops to be scattered around for sure. No, and I think it's just the pee. But even that is like it's strong. Yeah. I don't want to trade one bad thing for another. But yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you're settling in, though. It sounds like I mean, I'm looking at you right now. I see that you're in another closet, a much bigger (laughs) closet than the one that you were in in Los Angeles, California. So that's great. (laughs) One day I will actually like finish my office. But until then, I'm just going to be in closets all around the goddamn house. And I chose the one closest to the router. I was like, all right. 
my Ethernet cord doesn't stretch. Now I got to be strategic about this. So you might see me in a lot of different closets before this is done. Listen, uh, let's do a, a different closet every episode. If I mean, I'm, I'm like into it. I'm loving it. And it feels good. Yeah, that's great. I'm like, I'm so excited because it's like now. So I know that you dangled out that offer of like me coming to visit you. And now I'm like actually thinking about it because, you know, I know it's like the dead heat of summer. We're in like late July. It couldn't be hotter. But now I'm starting to be like, okay. but then fall comes. And then like, what's more charming than fall in like upstate New York? I only know this from TV and film. I don't know this personally. But it would be great to come see you. There is an Apple Fest that happens in my town every year because this town is just filth, this lousy with apple orchards. <gasps> and you've got the fall colors and you can just go pick some apples. You can just like, you know, everyone just has diarrhea from October 1st to October 30th, just <laughs> eating apples like 10 at a time. It's beautiful. And the weather is nice and you can like go on like just a regular drive to the store becomes like a, a biblical event in terms of the colors and the, you know, all of the the fall activity. So you got to you got to you got to come. I want to do it. And and I saw what you did. Uh, retreat. Oh, my Get God. Get everyone up here. It'll be like dirty dancing. I imagine that your place is like Kellerman's and there's going to be like you know, activities like somebody's going to teach us how to like put on wigs. You're going to have some other one of your friends teach us how to like dance, teach us how to do like ballroom dancing. There will be a fucking pageant. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. We're going to do a pageant (laughs) or like a showcase. You know, you're saying dirty dancing. It's going to be more like Dirty John. Someone's going to get stabbed. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's going to get tricked. Someone's going to lose a family member. <laughs> They're going to be driven away from a family member. <laughs> okay, But there is a oh. creek. <laughs> we can do a little dance over a creek. <laughs> Just as long as nobody drowns in the creek, I think we'll no, be fine. We could make this happen. I'm into it. I cannot wait for you to visit. And also, if you come and visit in the fall, you know what that means bust out that farmer's almanac and start planting for the summer. Oh my God. Or for next spring. Listen, I am so hard on the farmer's almanac right now because you don't know this about me, but in my experience being in Florida, being with my family, you know, my mom is like a huge gardener and she kind of taught me everything I know about plant care and all this stuff like that. But like she and I together now I'm like, Reading the Farmer's Almanac constantly. It's been like their website is super informative. Okay. Yeah. Like, I know that we should be buying the thing with the nail through it, but like also their website is great. It has all these tips about like how to grow for like different things like containers, raised beds. Yes. You know, fucking hardiness zones, all that shit. And I'm just like really getting into like the nerdiness of gardening where I'm like, yo, I'm starting to make my own soil. Yeah. You don't know what? this. Yeah. You can oh, make I'm- dirt. Yes. You can make your own potting mix. Okay. And it, and and there's also like okay, so besides the farmer's almanac, I have been obsessed with this television show on Britbox that I get through Amazon. It's called Gardener's World. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's been on for like 7,000 years. <laughs> and it is hosted by a man named Monty Don. 
who is literally the greatest dude ever. He's like this super chill gardener. He has two dogs that follow him around the garden. One of them is a golden retriever. The other one is some kind of like silky terrier. And they're like, one's a big dog, one's a small dog. And they just like follow him around the garden, sleeping on the dirt, hanging out with him while he gardens. And he gives us all these tips on how to like plant things. When I tell you, it is the chillest, most wonderful show yes. I've ever seen. I I can't tell you how much I love it. I love it so much. This makes so much sense. And this is why it is 100% happening that you're going to come here. We're going to plant a garden. We're going to get you a garden. You're going to show me how to make dirt or soil or potting mix. I'm just going to have like, I'm going to have different stations. Like remember in, um, I don't know if you ever did this in, in elementary school where you would just have like a field day and they yes. would just set up different events. And you'd be like, I'm going to do the long jump. I'm going to do this. We're going to do that for gardening at both of our homes. Oh, my God. I, I'm happy to do it. I, I am like a like between the Farmer's Almanac and Gardener's World. I have learned so much over the course of this pandemic. I'm ex so I'm so excited to bring it out in the world. And your place seems like the best place to do it. We'll figure out what your hardiness zone is. We'll start buying and acquiring plants and seeds according to your zone. It's going to be great. We're going to do it all. I Cannot wait. And I want you to meet my friend Sarah, who I went to high school with. And she recently moved back to Warwick within the last couple of years. Her friend constantly makes fun of her because he's like, what are you, a witch? Like her garden is so like it's like just luscious and wonderful. And then she has all these like country charms made out of wood and crystals and shit. And he's like, what is going on here? Like, are you casting spells or growing vegetables? Oh, my God. You guys are going to meet and it's going to be like a, a meeting of the minds. I'm excited. I'm I'm really, I mean, you don't even know. I'm starting to look at this like gardener style, this like old lady gardener style. And I'm all and I always thought that was so corny. And now I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. Fucking butterfly moons and shit, like trinkets, <laughs> like things in the yard, like little fucking trinky dinks in the yard that have like globes, like and weird spirals. I'm like <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of kind of the thing. I'm like, oh, now I'm getting it. I'm getting the vibe. I love this for you. But if I come to your house and I see more than three wind chimes, we're going to have to have an intervention. <laughs> Define wind chime because there's shells. There's no thing. I understand. I understand. Like the bells, like the loud, the bells, the clanging. Like one or two is cool. But if you got if you, if you can walk into your yard and it's like a cacophony of sound and you can't hear the houses around you, we gonna talk. Yeah, I listen. <laughs> you you might have to pull the pull the cord at some point. <laughs> There'll be little signs that that will emerge that that where that might be the case. But for now, I'm just enjoying my hobby, not a quarantine passing passion yes. this is a full-on obsession that will stay forever so yes. please don't tell me i'm being trendy i'm doing the thing that i like and you always have you always have been interested in this you just now have the space to like really go for it yes and you know what we love to see it thank you all right so we have um we have a little bit of a mailbag today yes we do we have a mailbag um do you want to read it 
Yeah, I'm going to read this one. Uh, Hi, Millie and Danielle. I've listened to the podcast since day one and love it. I love film and film history, but get tired of listening to the same white guys rave about Pulp Fiction on their podcasts. (laughs) So listening to the two of you is so refreshing. I wanted to bring an underrated movie that I love deeply to your attention. It's Westward the Women, directed by William Wellman. It has its shortcomings, but for the time period, I think it's extraordinary, especially as a Western. I shared it with some friends and with my husband, and while they enjoyed it, it seems like it's only really loved by me and my sister. Are there any other underrated old films that you love that maybe others don't get? Shay. Thanks for writing in, Shay. That's a great question. Yeah, Shay. Man, first of all, I have to say... You're not alone in your love for Westward the Women. Or alliteration. Yes. William Wellman's Westward the Women. <laughs> Lots of W's. Um, I think that movie is actually really great. I think it's really thought provoking. There's so many things going on in that movie. Um, and I actually rewatched it recently. And man, there's a lot going on. It's like, you know, it's about gender roles. I mean, there's a Japanese cowboy in 1951. Um, you know, <laughs> I actually encourage people, if you haven't seen it, to seek it out. But I also know what it feels like to like something that like no one else gets. And you're like, why doesn't anybody love this? Like, you know, weird melodrama from the 50s. And, you know, and I love it. But somebody else is kind of like or if they just don't they've never heard of it. Like, I, you know, being raised with my my grandmother, I'm like, remember that movie? And people are like, no, we didn't. We weren't raised by septuagenarians. We have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) We were watching Grease for the 95th time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we won't go on our tangent about, um, you know, movies like Untamed Heart and Gleaming the Cube and that kind of thing. But even within, I think, the classic film community, too, there's also people who just like love weird things within older movies um, that other classic movie people like don't get. And you're kind of like, you've betrayed me, but whatever, you know, Um, I think we have somebody that we can access (laughs) that would be a great person to answer this question of like, what is a movie that you love or champion that no one else seems to get? And we were able to access them, which is great. (laughs) And so let's bring in the big guns. Yeah, we had to call in the pinnacle of film knowledge and (laughs) just someone who is so dear to my heart as just in in so many ways, but particularly the, the deep diving into underrated films, underrated uh, producers and directors and and Hollywood uh, tales. Uh, so we just went ahead and, and we just went to the best is what we did. Yes. <laughs> so let's talk to her. She is a writer, a journalist, a film critic, and the creator and host of the incredible film history podcast. You must remember this. It's Karina Longworth, everyone. Welcome. Oh my God. You guys, I'm (laughs) blushing the way that you introduced me. Thank you so much. Oh, we're so happy to have you here. And especially for this question, underrated old films that you love that maybe others don't get. I'm sure that there's there's got to be something in the hopper. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when I when I first heard the question, I I was it was difficult for me because I think a lot of the movies that that came to mind immediately were things where it's just like, well, 
I have this experience that she's talking about all the time, but usually it's because people just haven't seen the movies I'm talking about. It's very rarely that it's like, I, I really appreciate a movie that other people, you know, have maligned or, 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 you know, is considered like a film modi or whatever. Um, and actually like the first thing that came to mind when she said William Wellman was this other William Wellman movie called the purchase price. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know that movie where Barbara Stanwyck plays a mail order bride, <gasps> which is like, I, I don't know if, if it's, you know, considered to be a bad movie, <laughs> but I think it's a movie that is, um, probably kind of misrepresented as being pre Cody. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, certainly there are things about it, like, like the open use of alcohol and just the fact that she's sort of put in this situation of being a mail order bride, like on the frontier. Um, but I, you know, I don't think of it in this as like being sort of a, a novelty film. I think it's actually, you know, uh, very rich and, and sophisticated in a lot of ways. But then I, I was like, well, maybe that's, I don't even really know what the reputation of that movie is. So maybe that doesn't count. And then I thought, well, I really like Kay Francis and a lot of people just like really consider her to not have been a great actress. And I disagree certainly. And especially in, in uh, one way passage, which is a Tay Garnett boat movie with her and William Powell. Um, and of course, trouble in paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw uh, one of her films for the first time recently, Mandalay, mm-hmm. which I also think is really great. And, you know, I, I think that she's somebody who has this reputation of just being a clothes horse and just being good looking, but then she has, you know, this little list at the, which people make fun of and, and, you know, just don't really take her serious, take, maybe take her seriously as a star, but then suggest that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis kind of did what she did better. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can, you can say that, but I really enjoy Kay Francis's movies. I've never seen a Kay Francis movie that I didn't think was better because she's in it. Right. Right. And also that that brings to mind a question, um, you know, just hearing your response to that is based on this question, I kind of feel like the, the the term underrated has to be examined here a little bit, too, because it's like you said, like you could love something to bits and it might be that somebody hasn't ever seen the film or if they see they saw it and didn't like it, it doesn't mean that it's underrated for you um, or that you have to kind of throw out someone's entire career because you didn't like this one thing. So I think it's it's interesting also the way that people pit tend to pit things together when they're trying to decide what's underrated or not. <laughs> they tend to pit also, actresses yeah. against each other a lot oh absolutely and but it's just like when we're talking about classic film like so many of these things are not even rated like so many of these things are just like nobody's even talking about them so (laughs) it just feels like like all we we shouldn't worry about what anybody else thinks about anything you know we should just celebrate the things that we love i totally agree you know and there's there's certainly things too because i feel like Classic movies is just such a well, like it's a well that you just kind of fall down into. And there's always like little discoveries and there's always these like little pockets of things. And there are times where I were, you know, I will even be to my TCM coworkers who like, you know, have seen it all basically. And I'll be like, oh my God, I just saw this like Shirley Booth movie where like, you know, it's a, it's a romantic drama and blah, blah, blah. blah and they're just sort of like, why like and I'm just walking around the office like screaming about how great it is and they're just like and then they would watch it and be like it's good but you know (laughs) what's your deal with it and so you know it's that kind of thing too where sometimes you just kind of like 
are in the hole and you're looking around and then you just really connect with something and you know, you just really want to make a case for it. And sometimes people are like, okay, cool. But you know, what's the passion for? So that, but that's an individual, I think, you know, that's a behavior that I try not to put that on other people. Right. Where I'm like, I'm not the type of person to like, want to kill your passion for this, like one random thing. You know what I mean? (laughs) And that's something else that I think Shay should consider too, is like, you don't have to show everything you love to other people. (laughs) hoard it <laughs> i definitely used to think that you did you know i think that i was sort of like a you know the video store version of like high fidelity yeah. um <laughs> like when i was in graduate school i used to you know like on like the third date i'd show guys kiss me stupid as like a referendum <laughs> on on their personality you yeah, know? Exactly. And, and that didn't go well <laughs> that wasn't a great idea and I feel like it's from from my perspective as someone who who's a film enthusiast, um, but definitely not an expert by any stretch. I just love that anyone can discover a classic movie to begin with. Like there's so much choice out there right now. And I think that if if you love old films or are interested in older films, that you should just go with it and run with it and like what you like and discover what you can discover. And I think that's why one one of the many, many reasons why I love listening to your podcast, because there could be things that I think, oh, sure, I probably know. I know about that. Like, I've heard about that. But then you do such an intense amount of research and you help to kind of bring the focus into the whole context of what was happening then. So it's not just this film. It's let's look at this film during this decade, during the, you know, the pre-code or, you know, the code era. Let's look at, you know, what was happening with all of these different relationships. Let's look at what was happening with all these different studios. And I think that if you have even a fleeting interest in, in classic film, it's really helpful to think of it that way and to kind of put it into context. Um and of other things that you like or are interested in. So I think it's it's great that, Shay, that you try to show this to your, your husband and your sister, but you can get divorced and you can get emancipated and just not have a family or a husband if they don't like what you like. Just get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hopefully, like, I mean, I know I've had the experience of, of just not really being necessarily being able to share everything with my spouse and there are things that he's interested in that I'm not and vice versa. And especially TV shows, like we have completely different TV shows. And I think with movies, we have more in common, but I mean, you know, there's definitely like, he'll go like get really deep into some, like some genre or some filmmaker or something and like watch a lot of it without me, you know, because you just can't be together all the time and and vice versa. And so, yeah, I think that you can have really rich experiences with stuff that, you don't necessarily share with other people. Yeah. Could not agree more. Did you get into anything in particular, like maybe during quarantine? I was like talking to somebody the other day about that, where they were like, oh, I, I went on this like whole tear where I watched like all the James Bond movies in a row during quarantine. Or like, did you have anything like that while you were in lockdown? Yeah, we start. Well, we started trying to watch all of the best picture winners that we hadn't seen. Oh, cool. I think we only got through like four <laughs> because um, so a lot of times there's a reason why you haven't seen exactly. them. But I would, I would say that a, a surprise for me was actually around the world in 80 days, mm-hmm. um, which I had just expected that we would turn off after 20 minutes. Yeah, but I actually kind of found a lot of it delightful. Um, racist for sure. There's, there's several different types of racism, but, um, the, like just the technicolor spectacle of it, mm-hmm. um, it was, is pretty great. And David Niven and, you know, it, I found that it, it wasn't like, 
it certainly bloated, but it it wasn't boring. And I had definitely expected it to be boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the pitfall of of some classic films is you're like, oh, sexism <laughs> and racism on parade. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, also like the whole point of that movie is colonialism. Like, exactly. It's just to say like these rich white people can like go around the world. Anywhere so, they want. Anywhere they literally want. Literally <laughs> collect people of other races at certain points. And, and one of those points, Shirley MacLaine is playing a person of another race. So, oh, um, yeah, you yeah. know, some... D- Certainly some filmmaking decisions that I hope would not be made today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's kind of like to take it back to this, like Westward, the women um, passion that Shay has. uh, That that was kind of what I was thinking when I was rewatching it, too, was just this idea of like, I'm sitting here going like, is this movie sexist? But then there's also these like really powerful women who are, you know, because the film is essentially about, you know, um, traveling across the country in like in a stagecoach caravan because they want to bring these single women to California to like marry these guys. And essentially, you know, they have to travel across the country in this very harsh environment. Like in in parts of this movie are so grim. And there was this like one... (laughs) I remember there was this one part where um, when I guess it's the Robert Taylor character, he's like addressing one of the guys that's going to receive this woman, you know, as like a wife. And uh, he was like, these women have been through hell and you should know because you were in the Donner Party. And that, you know, basically he was like, (laughs) you were in the Donner Party and made it. And yet these women have been through more than you. But it's that whole thing where I'm like, okay, so you have this like Robert Taylor character who's basically like trying to tell, you know, like trying to make these women into men so they can survive the harshness of this journey. But then they're just like also really powerful, really compelling, interesting, take no shit kind of women. So I'm sitting here going like, I like this, but this seems a little sexist, but it's also not sexist. And it's definitely there is some racism with the Japanese cowboy. But the fact that there was a Japanese cowboy <laughs> in a movie. And, you know, So I'm just like, it's always that sort of like dance of, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I definitely I wish I'm going to watch this. I haven't watched this film yet, but I am going to watch Westward the Women. Um, and I'm glad I didn't watch it before I spent four years in Alaska because driving women to a strange land <laughs> for marriage is kind of the M.O. up there. Is it really? <laughs> well, like women used to outnumber men by quite a bit there. It's not that yeah. way anymore. Um, but it used to be very much like if you were a woman going to Alaska, the thought was you're going to get a man and it's not. Sometimes you're just going because you're a depressed weirdo who who was in September 11th and wants to get out of New York. And you're not even thinking about that. Um, but this this film sounds great. I think, again, my my general steez is that if you love a classic film, just throw yourself into it. Throw yourself into more. Um, I think that the 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 underratedness of older films is going to become it seems like a, a gulf that's widening as we get older, simply because more films are considered classic, but also because more um, older films are becoming less available, depending on the format. So I think, you know, it's it's in order to find some other films that, you know, that other people might not get, you might have to actually go to physical media. <laughs> you might have to like, you know, just kind of yeah. expand a little bit and then share it, share it with us because we're here for you. We got a community here yeah. online. <laughs> I decided at some point also during quarantine to um, try to watch all the Douglas Sirk movies I had never seen. Oh, yeah. But 
I had seen everything that was easily available. And so then it was like, there, I would, there was one or two that I was able to watch on YouTube. And then there were a couple of others that I bought like Korean versions of that took for so long to arrive that by the time they arrived, like I had sort of moved on to something else. So <laughs> I haven't like, actually watched them yet, but like, I got the vaccine. I don't need this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> They're waiting for me, you know, when I uh, get back on to a Douglas Sirk kick, which is inevitable. That's great. Oh, That's a great idea. Oh, I, I am so thrilled with this. I feel like we gave Shay a bunch of yeah. options. Right. I mean, listen, the purchase price got mentioned. That's that's I'm good with that. Like if that was the only recommendation, that's great. And, and you know, when it comes down to it, too, I will say this. I mean, and I don't know how, if you feel this way, Karina, <laughs> I'm not going to speak for you, but like I'm always that person where I'm like, when I was growing up, liking old movies was weird. Like I was like, none yeah. of my family likes old movies. I like old movies. And I'm kind of like, I'm cool with that. If I'm the only person that likes it. And I'm the old, I'm the fuddy duddy that likes old movies in my family. Fine. I'm cool. So if anybody's going to give you shit for loving Westward, the women, <laughs> I say lean into it and just be like, yes, this is what I start like. Start dressing like the characters. Start cosplaying <laughs> and then see what they have to say about it. <laughs> just start going around yeah. like cracking whips and stuff. And <laughs> That would be like the actual version of, you know, um, sort of embracing your uh, supposedly oppressed affinity group that like Comic-Con <laughs> thinks it is, or at least at one point thought it was. But I mean, you know, I guess there, nobody's like actually filling convention halls about William Wellman movies yet. Yet. But maybe, <laughs> maybe the three of us with our podcasts can... You know, oh, completely. We're, we're going to create a community for Shay that is going to be like undeniable. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want that. I want that Comic-Con panel so bad. <laughs> I would actually Will, go William to Comic-Con. cosplay. Holy shit. That just blew my mind. I want to ask you a little bit about the last um, season of your podcast, which was about which was called Gossip Girls. And it was about Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. We actually know somebody who we know, Julie Klausner. We were on her podcast recently mm -hmm. and I know she played one of the one of the girls. So I thought it was entirely fascinating. Um, I'm really glad you did it. I mean, you obviously are really great at picking subjects that really need a like a spotlight um, and finding these like little pockets of, of, of old Hollywood is so fantastic. And um, are you working on anything else? Like what, what's the next step? Yeah. Um, I'm working on a couple of things right now. I, the next thing that people will hear from me is um, I don't think I'm allowed to say what it is, but it's, it's a podcast that is sort of in the vein of, you must remember this, but I'm collaborating with um, somebody who's the granddaughter of the people that it's about, figures from sort of 1930s through 1960s Hollywood. And so I'm doing that like for another company. It's not going to be You Must Remember This, but people who listen to You Must Remember This should look out for it in August. And then there's going to be another season of You Must Remember This in the fall, which um, I'm working on right now. And I don't want to say exactly what it's about, but, um, it's about, it's about two men, which is not something I do very often. So. I'm so intrigued. I can't wait. And I there's, wait. there's lots of themes of, of masculinity and music. Well, there, there are so many seasons to dig into. If you have not already listened to all that you must remember, this has to offer your mind is about to be blown.
We're just so grateful that you were with us, that you took the time. And yes. again, like just huge, huge fans of you as, as a as a as, as a creator, but also just as a person. Like you're just a delight and yeah. you're so smart and funny and just really, really help more people find this this film community that you that you've created, which is impressive and wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. I'd love to come back. All right. This week, we're bringing the thunder. We're re-thundering, to be we're re- technical. <laughs> re-thundering. <laughs> we're re-thundering. Because we've got a theme that we've, we've discussed before, but it is a, a deep well <laughs> that we can <laughs> return to again and again. And Millie, do you want to tell them what it is? The theme is classic movie fuckboys. There are so many. So many. And we, like I said, we did this. This was episode number six, where we paired two films that displayed classic movie fuckboys. They were Reality Bites and The Way We Were. And I know it was an early episode, but if you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it uh, and then listen to this because, you know, we sort of set up the idea of what a classic movie fuckboy is, which is basically just a fuckboy, but in an old movie. Right. Exactly. And there there we, we used in the first episode that we talked about this just kind of one definition of fuckboy uh, to kind of cover both. And it worked out well because they were both, you know, equally awful in the same way um and i think for this week for my film um i took a different approach and i took a a, a, an approach that just felt funny to me um (laughs) for my film but also as a definition i'm taking fuckboy back to its origin which is in black culture and instead of it being just like a guy who fucks around on women and is constantly, you know, stringing women along to get what they want, I'm using it in the traditional black culture sense of using the term fuckboy to point out a man who's just kind of just kind of sucks. So that's kind of kind of the tactic I'm taking this week is to bring it back to its origin to talk about the dude that I've picked out for my film. Well, I got to tell you, I think mine is <laughs> mine is not too far off that mark. I mean, when yeah. it comes down to it, I would say that the first episode six, the first version of this that we did, those guys are definitely like players. They enter into these sort of like big romantic relationships with the central character of the film. And it's just like, you know, I guess in the scope of the film, it's seen as like super swoony, super romantic. But, you know, from our perspective, it was like, uh, uh-uh, uh, that guy's a fuck boy. He, you know, and, and that's, that was the, I guess that was sort of the humor of the episode. Right. And in these movies for this time, these guys are way more hardcore than those two guys. <laughs> I mean, diving into like the criminal element, if you will. So all that's in my head right now is that Billy Joel song. I don't know why I go to extremes because we went to extremes this time. <laughs> yeah, this is probably on the other side of the spectrum where they are actual bad people, but then they're also fuckboys, and that's the humor of it. Is that we're like, oh, they're fuckboys too. It's like saying I'm. I'm a murderer, but I'm also a fuckboy. Okay. Right. We're just breaking down layers this time. <laughs> That's right. And ultimately, you know, I think these are two movies that are 
very influential, very much a part of that sort of classic film canon. And one is like Mm -hmm. a, a much older film than the other, but even the newer film is classic at this point. Enough time has passed. Okay. So I'm excited to talk about him and sort of like, um, create the cases for both of our characters and why they're fuck boys. It's going to be fun. I cannot wait at all and you're going first so just lay it on (laughs) us because i have so much to say oh my god about both of these films i was not prepared to go first but i will be um because i am (laughs) raring to go too so my film for the theme of classic movie fuckboys is a movie released in 1951 it was directed by george stevens and it's called a place in the sun This is the unforgettable story of a boy from nowhere fighting desperately for his place in the sun, torn between the conflicting passions that shaped his destiny. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so let's get some paperwork out of the way, as I like to say. Um, This film was based on a, a book. It was a crime fiction novel. Okay, and it was called An American Tragedy. It was released in 1925. Um, and written by Theodore Dreiser. And he based the book on a true crime that happened in the early 20th century. And it was the murder of this woman named Grace Brown in 1906. And prior to A Place in the Sun, there was actually already a film adaptation that had come out in the 30s that was called An American Tragedy. And it was directed by the great director, Joseph von Sternberg, and it starred the great Sylvia Sidney, whom I think most people of a certain age remember as the older woman in Beetlejuice that like works in like the purgatory with the cigarette out of the neck. Yes. But, you know, she had a very long career and she was a great actress. And I actually haven't seen an American tragedy because I think it's actually pretty hard to find. But um, it also kind of had this like tumultuous production history. And it was like allegedly it was so hated by Theodore Dreiser, who wrote the book, that he actually sued the filmmakers because he hated it so much. Um, so it's just kind of a big mess with that version, the 31 version. But let's talk about the 51 version, which is obviously called A Place in the Sun. Now, because Danielle has required us to do this by law, I want to give a one sentence <laughs> synopsis of the story. Actually, she doesn't require it. I just like it now. Now I'm just like, I got to do it, right? <laughs> by by mutual decree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So one sentence synopsis of A Place in the Sun. A young man from modest means is given the opportunity to work at his rich uncle's company where he finds himself in a dire romantic and moral dilemma involving two women, a factory line worker at his workplace and a wealthy, beautiful girl about town. Nailed it. Okay. There was a there was a colon in there. It's technically one sentence, I guess. It is. I love it. I okay. love it. And you know what else I love? Because this is, again, my favorite thing about watching older movies is when they do the whole, they roll all the credits as the movie is starting in the beginning instead of waiting until the end. And right away I noticed that there is an actor named Keith. And I don't know why that makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> But his name is Keith. And then there's a character named Bellows. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm in. Keith Bellows. <laughs> I'm in. 
<laughs> Chief, is it Chief Keef? No, I'm sorry. He was Chief not alive. Chief Bellows. <laughs> All right. So, obviously, this film is a movie that I would say, in big capital letters, is a big, important film, right? One, one of the great classic American films. It stars... Two of the biggest stars of the 1950s, Elizabeth Taylor and Montgomery Clift, they would be good friends for the rest of their lives after this film was made. More about that later. Um, And it won a ton of Oscars when it came out. And I actually didn't know this until Danielle and I were on an episode of Double Threat, which is the podcast from Julie Klausner and Tom Sharpling. And Tom mentioned this in that episode that we were on. And I actually didn't know this, but this this movie, A Place in the Sun, was Mike Nichols' favorite film. And apparently he watched it like 50 times or something. Oh. Um, which I think is really interesting. So I want to talk about the director, George Stevens, just a little bit. Because if you listen to episode 16, which is the episode where we talked about Gleaming the Cube and Memphis Bell, um, I, I breathe... <laughs> Wait, how does George Stevens factor in... Come on this journey with me. Um, <laughs> I talked about Memphis Bell and I talked about Five Came Back, which oh, was yeah. the book by Mark Harris, but also was sort of is the general idea of these like five Hollywood directors who who went to World War II and then came back. And George Stevens was one of the five came back, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. So we begin this film with a man named George Eastman, who is played by Montgomery Clift. George is the nephew of this wealthy business owner. And at the beginning of the film, we're told that George basically grew up poor and in the church. Um, I think like his mother was a missionary and they used to do like Christmas carols or something. They used to sing for people Um, like on the street. Right. Like he was like a street performer. Yeah. But he grew up poor and in the church, and then he left school at a certain point to start working like kind of odd jobs to support the family, which is how he gets back in touch with his uncle of his. And at the beginning of the film, George arrives in California where his uncle Charles Eastman has offered him this job at his company, um, which makes bathing suits, I guess yeah. is what they make. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't which sure I love. first. Because yeah. at first I'm like, oh, Eastman, like Eastman Kodak. No, it's bathing suit Eastman, not Kodak <laughs> Eastman. And I exactly. also love that Montgomery Clift is like in the beginning, he's kind of hitching. He's got his thumb out for a while and he's watching all these beautiful cars pass. And then he ends up rolling into California in a Beverly Hillbillies jalopy. Yeah, it's like a chicken like truck. The, <laughs> the only person that stops for him is like... This pure jalopy, and I love it. Yeah, it really it really sets a tone. Um, but basically, George gets a room at a local boarding house, and the next day he comes into the factory, and his cousin Earl is in charge of putting him on the factory line to like box up these swimsuits. And this cousin and uncle, so this side of the Eastman family, okay, we're told that they are they they basically run this town that they're in. And they're incredibly rich. They sit around in like fancy clothing and sip cocktails. I mean, it is like a Whit Stillman movie up in there. Right. And one night, George is invited to his uncle's mansion. And when he's there, a woman shows up and she is the beautiful and effervescent Angela Vickers, who is played by Elizabeth Taylor 
who at the time was 17 years old and just like impossibly radiant and beautiful. Right. Completely. And she was beautiful her entire life. Trust yeah. me. I'm, I'm like one of the biggest Elizabeth Taylor stands we know. But <laughs> at the, like a place in the sun was like, you know, she was just sort of like young, beautiful. She was she had been a child actor, but this was kind of her like big thing. Right. Yeah, completely. And that meeting is great. Like that whole intro, I love it because it's like the kind of before he gets there, before George gets there, it's like the family sitting around talking about George and like, who is this guy and why did you give him a job? And his wife's a little bit snobby about it. My favorite thing about that whole scene is um, I just I love a man who calls his family you people. So he turns to them and his wife's like, how are we going to entertain him socially? Like, we don't know him. And he's like, you people don't have to entertain him. Like, you people don't have to hang out with this guy. Get off my back. I love it. He's so used to berating his employees at this company <laughs> that he treats his family like that. Like, he's basically like, you people. Oh, I'm sorry. I married you. You're my wife and my, exactly. my son. It's so great. Gotta love a shitty old white businessman. Right? <laughs> Just a real real peek into that world instantly. <laughs> exactly. But when Angela wafts into the room, George is like, oh, like he's completely taken aback by her beauty and grace. And he gets like a 10 second little glance of her. And then she's off into the night with Earl and their friends. And that's kind of their first initial pairing. It was very brief. Cut to George is back on the factory line and he's having this little flirtation with a woman that he works with named Alice Tripp. And she is played by Shelley Winters, a favorite of the I Saw What You Did crew. Yes. Now, this is in spite of the fact that his cousin Earl has told him on the first day that he started working there that... Workplace romance is absolutely forbidden at this company. It's like the only thing he told him. He didn't even tell him like how to do his job. He was like, hey, welcome. Do not fuck anybody here. <laughs> Have fun at work. And he's like, what is work? What am I doing? He's like, go, go over there. Figure it out. Don't fuck anybody. <laughs> so in spite of this, of all this information, George sees Alice at the movies one night and they end up sitting together and they end up hanging out after the movie. And like, okay, George is already trying to put on the moves. Okay. Now I've seen this movie like several times and I will say this, when I watched it the other night for this episode, I was actually kind of shocked by how horny and intense George is on this first date. It was like an accidental first date. Yeah. And a movie from 1951, no doubt. Yeah. No, it's like on display. Like he is just like, oh, cool. We're at the movies. How about we kiss? No. How about we fuck? What? Mm-hmm. He's just like in the car, like everywhere. He's just leading with his boner all over this movie. I was like, damn, dude. Like you literally, you just ran into this woman like a couple <laughs> hours ago. <laughs> and I have, and it also has to be said. So this is a time where normal Working class people, especially if you were single, lived in these sort of rooming or boarding houses where Mm -hmm. the landlords of these places were like almost like surrogate parents. And they were all up in your business. 
all oh, up you in your can't business. even you get a, a piece of mail and they're like who's this yeah. like that's my cousin oh all right cool <laughs> like, i mean yes I, that is, it's absolutely wild from like a modern perspective but back then it was totally kosh for your landlord to kick you out of the house, put you on the street for seeing you engage in like a Frenchless kiss on the sidewalk in front of their damn house. Like it wasn't even like you wouldn't even have to be in the house doing anything if they just saw you from the window. Hey, that woman lives in my building. She's kissing a guy. She's out of here. And you're like, what? How is that Get possible? But it was on out. Also, what I love about this date as well, this first this first date, which is completely accidental, is it made me question, like, on what date do you reveal your deepest fears or your biggest secrets? Because Alice was just like, hey, thanks for walking me home. Um, P.S. I don't know how to swim. I'm afraid of water. (laughs) I'm like, that feels like a date 18 kind of thing to me. Like, feels like very vulnerable. (laughs) She's like, I grew up on a farm, my family's super poor, and I don't like water, and I don't know how to swim. And I'm like, hmm, maybe keep a little bit of that under the vest a little bit. Right, because this guy's going to bookmark that comment for later (laughs) on in the film. But listen, okay, if we're talking about fuckboys on this episode, and we are, I feel like this date really lays the foundation, okay? Because Mm -hmm. George is coming in real hot very early on, which, of course, sets a tone that's going to make things very complicated for him later on, as we will Ooh, see. Yeah. So you've got George and Alice now who are seeing each other on the sly because, again, no workplace romance. And since they both live in boarding houses, they basically have no place to get busy ever. And <laughs> since they're not supposed to be dating, they can't even hang out at work. <laughs> but in spite of these inconveniences, they seem to be very smitten with each other. And one night they actually do find a way to consummate the relationship. And this whole seduction sequence takes place on opposite sides of a window in the dark in one of their rooms, in one of their boarding house rooms. And in the movie, this scene is very evocative, but I also Mm -hmm. feel like it shows you really how these two grown adults had pretty much little to no privacy in their lives. And it's really because of their economic status. It's because of who they are as people in this world. Right. Yeah. Total class issue. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like in, in a way money gives you privacy. It gives you a place to like live your life. And that happens later on in the film where, um, you know, a, like rich people have lakes that no one mm-hmm. is on, like the lakes to themselves, entire houses and spaces to themselves. It's really interesting. And also, just as a side note, there's something I did notice in this rewatch, which is that there is a lot of use of windows in this movie, yeah. which if you look at it from the class perspective, I think makes a little sense. I mean, this is a movie about people who are looking in and, you know, I'm probably not the first person to make this observation. So I digress. But anyway, I just I needed to say that for the record. I know it's a brilliant it. observation. And from my perspective, you are the first person to say it. So suck it. Anyone else? Thank you. I hope to be footnoted in the Wikipedia article about this movie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't don't do that. So, OK, at this point, Alice starts telling George, hey, this is fun. But, you know, eventually. Because you're at Eastman, you're going to get fast tracked and you're going to forget about me, mm-hmm. which is, I think a, it's a reasonable read on the situation on her part, I think. 
But George insists, listen, like I am actually from the poor part of this family. So I guarantee you, I will be boxing up one pieces for a long time. But he's, he's saying this to her, but also at the same time, has this kind of natural initiative and he's at work and his bosses are noticing that he's doing a good job. And suddenly his uncle is mm-hmm. kind of telling him, hey, come around a little more. And on one of his trips up to the mansion, he attends this party and he ends up in a room with Angela Vickers, old Vickers. And listeners, let me tell you, George Eastman is shook. <laughs> he, he is bumbling and fumbling and he's trying to play pool and she's like standing behind him and she just wants to watch. And you can see it in his face. George is like, Alice, who? And it should be said that this party just so happens to be taking place on his birthday. Alice has already planned a party and he's like, it's cool. I'm just going to go to my uncle's house for like five minutes, put in an appearance and then I'll be back. Then he's shaken by Angela Vickers. And that does not happen. Listen, OK. Alice plans out this whole thing for him. She makes them a dinner and he's and she sets it out on this like tiny little table. And it's just this thing where the moment that that happens, where essentially he gets the last minute invite, he goes up. He meets Angela. They're having a great time. And then he shows up like hours and hours later to like cold dinner, melted dessert. And Alice is just kind of sitting there like, what the fuck? I mean, basically, this is fuckboy tactic number two in my eyes. Okay, because he's telling her, oh, I'm going to spoil this amazing dinner that you planned for my birthday, but I'm going to do it for us. Uh So, you know, and I'm like. I'm ditching you for us is the worst fucking shit in the world. Oh, that is like fuckboy hall of fame. That is a fuckboy hall of fame move. Exactly. And but when it comes down to it, George is long gone. I mean, he is in love with Angela. He loves her whole life, her whole vibe. And, you know, George is horny, as we know. But he also (laughs) has this like crazy status anxiety. And you can tell he's thinking, oh, man, this is great. I'm traipsing around with this high society set and my new family. They love to hang out Mm -hmm. with me now. And this boarding house life is looking real unappealing. And the dilemma of this is just like all over his face. And there's this one scene that I want to talk about. There's this one scene with Angela where she notices that he's kind of like preoccupied in thought. And we're, I guess, told as as viewers that this is his dilemma is this sort of like, I want this, but I have this and I don't know what to do. And what we know about Angela up until this point is that she is effervescent. She has the privileges of a rich white girl. And she sort of sees George as this sort of like poor, sort of like wounded little bird or something in this moment. And she takes him and says something to him that rocks me to my core to this very day, which is that she says, Tell Mama. Tell Mama. I die. I die when I hear that. <laughs> I can't. Like somebody needs oh, to make no. me a t-shirt that says tell mama all and I will wear it until it melts into my flesh. You're, you're going to wear it until it disintegrates. <laughs> tell mama all. Like that is insane. Like, first of all, ma'am, you're 17. 
maybe take that mama shit down a notch. I'm like, wait a second. I think he's older than you, but that's chill. But also just like the like tell mama all. What the fuck? I mean, that is so insane. I can't <laughs> I can literally never imagine saying that to another person in my life. Even if I was someone's actual mama, I would never say that. (laughs) That shit also kills me. It's like it's it's also this is this is part of the fuckboy motif as well, where it's like he will gravitate towards the woman who is offering to take care of him the most. Yep. Because this is, again, this is another example of this fuckboy shit because I'm making my, I'm here to make my case that he is a classic movie fuckboy. And this is, this is what I mean. In this moment, Angela thinks that he is just deep as hell. And little does she know he's just scheming. That's all it is. Exactly. Who's been there? I certainly have. You know? Who's zooming who? Who's (laughs) zooming who? Tell mama all. My God. So, yeah, as you may have guessed, though, I mean, things get much worse for old Alice Tripp. Her boyfriend is starting to hang out with his new friends. And she, of course, finds out that she's pregnant. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in 1951, during the production code in Hollywood, this has to be handled very delicately, of course. Alice Tripp sees a doctor and in a sneaky production code way. She says, hello, this is 1951, and I am an unmarried poor woman who just got pregnant by a guy who I wasn't even supposed to be dating in the first place, but is currently in the process of ditching me for another woman. I know I can't ask for an abortion, (laughs) and the idea that I would actually raise this child alone is not possible for so many reasons. So, like, what do I do? Okay? Mm -hmm. And this doctor snaps that cabinet door shut and he's basically like go home to your mom and dad and let them handle it that's it <laughs> this, is, this is the part if you're rocked by tell mama all this is the part where i was like press pause i'm sorry what like it took me five minutes to come back to this movie because this doctor straight up was like i think you're gonna be a good mother go home to your fucking parents I can't talk to you about anything else beyond this point. Now that I know that you are not married yes. and you've been doing some ho shit. Like yes. he was out. Yeah. It's like, thanks for nothing, asshole. Like she comes there, puts her heart on the table, admits all this. Like, I mean, at this time, 1951, if you're pregnant and the guy's not around, like that ain't good at all. And also, like, don't don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure if you go home to your parents in 1951, unmarried and pregnant, your parents could legally kill you. Like, that is such bad advice all around. They could just she lives on a farm in Arkansas or something. It's like they could kill you, bury you in the yard. No one would ever ask what happened to you. You would just disappear. Yeah. But this was so impressive, though, because it's like not only for 1951, but I think that in a realistic way, like I know we're having a lot of fun, but, you know, but in a realistic way, this is a the they found a way around the code to talk about the realities of abortion rights or the yeah. lack of abortion rights at that time, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. For a movie that was under a lot of restrictions. It was a big deal to even dangle it. I mean, they didn't even say the words, but it was dangled in front of us. and It was a big 
a big deal. So Shelly Winter's character is in a real bind. And, you know, reasonably, I feel she tells George that she's pregnant and she says to him in so many words, hey, this is 1951. So I guess we just get married and I have the baby and that's that, which, of course, is no bueno for George whatsoever. And he's like freaking out about this news. At the same time, he's listening to the radio and he hears this news report about the rising number of car accidents and drownings that are happening this summer. And you can start to see George process this information. Mm -hmm. And as he and Angela are spending more and more time together, Alice is at home. She's pregnant. She opens up the newspaper and she sees George water skiing with Angela and her friends in the society pages of this newspaper. And she simply flips the fuck out. As she should, because this is also on the heels of like prior to her being like, hey, we should get married. She was like, have you called the doctor yet? Like she's basically asking him, like, you need to be the one to schedule this abortion because I can't do it. And he's like, no, I haven't done it yet. He is setting dates with Angela Vickers. And this is a this is a fuckboy moment as well. A fuckboy will be scheduling dates with other women when he should be scheduling your fucking abortion. Like, that is a fuckboy move. That's a fuckboy move. That's a power fuckboy move that moves into, like, bad person territory. Uh, Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's true. And, like, again, I think that in a certain way we were supposed to see Alice as being, like, a nag. Like, a drag nag in this moment. But, you know, from my eyes, I'm like, uh yeah um this is some fuck shit that he's pulling and she's right to like be pissed off that he promised her to be with be with her and to do something for her and then she sees him in a newspaper like that to me man i felt that so hard when that scene happened because it also happened exactly the way she said it would which is you're gonna rise in the ranks of class because of who your family is and you're gonna forget about me and that is exactly what happened and you know because she's in this moment, she puts this ultimatum on him and she says he needs to marry her or she's going to tell everybody, his new family and his new group of friends, that there's this baby coming and that he's been with her and she's this poor factory girl and not this like society woman, right? And here's the thing. So from this point on in the movie, I think that Montgomery Clift is really clocking in as an actor. And I think that's what makes this movie classic for me is the notion that, okay, you are seeing, yes, he's been a fuck boy until this point, but also you can see that he's thinking about the dilemma. And I'll tell you right now, I did not feel this with Hubble Gardner. Oh, completely. Like the Hubble and the Troy, they were so aloof about the situations. And it was kind of like, you know, their lives were easy going. They got what they wanted. Everything was cool. Like it, it was just too, too aloof. And here you really did get that emotional, emotional beat to the point where there was one scene where I was like, oh, this really must suck to be in that position. Like I kind of fell for him for a minute and I was like, fuck that. That's another fuckboy yes. trick. <laughs> yes, that like that'll get you. And that's that's exactly how I felt was that I felt kind of like, yeah, because I mean, we know that. Montgomery Clift came from that era of like the James Dean, the Brando, the Strasberg method acting style. Right. But he's got chops. I mean, honestly, like in this movie, I think he really he really shows them. And 
I just want to get back to also this this thing with him and Elizabeth Taylor because so this was the first movie that they made together and apparently she fell in love with him when they were filming this movie and this was obviously before kind of really knowing you know he was gay and then they eventually after a certain point evolved into these kind of soulmates and best friends and and they were like that up until his death and a lot of what i've read about their friendship was that it was sort of like a place in the sun in the sense that she did sense that there was kind of a turmoil within him and she did feel protective of him in that tell mama yeah. all kind of way. I mean, honestly, tell she mama. kind of really felt that. Um, but I think it's one of the most interesting friendships in Hollywood for my money, certainly. And I just love reading about them because you can kind of see it in, in the movie. You can kind of see their chemistry and sort of just the way that he's, that they're both playing out these characters and knowing how they felt about each other kind of in real life. And I mean, if you haven't really read about Montgomery Clift, you really should. Cause his, his life was really fascinating and it was quite sad at many parts. Their friendship is really interesting. And if you ever just find yourself up at like three o'clock in the morning, Wikipedia, everything, or just go, go on a, a Google dive. It's really, really great. But I won't give away the end of this movie. Um, I know we get asked to, but it's like, I don't know. I, I want you to watch an old movie, so you got to watch it. But I mean, I'm going to sum up everything about this film, which is that as a classic movie fuckboy, right? Like George Eastman, obviously he's making poor choices in his quest for love. But his desire for money and status is the thing that made him like, it moved from a fuckboy to like a bad guy, right? right. And I think this movie is important and it is classic for just making us think about how complicated all that is. That's a great way to wrap it up for sure. Um, however, I'd be remiss if I didn't say another reason to watch this film, not just because it, because I think this, I like the way that you set this up though, Millie, because I think this is a way that people who are like, I kind of want to get into old films, but I'm not sure how this is how like you watch one movie, you start reading about the characters, you start reading about the actors, you read about the director, you watch something else the director did, you watch something else the actor did. And that like sets you on the path. It's just that easy. Like <laughs> You just watch a movie and you're on the path. Um, but I will also say, though, like I would definitely be remiss if I didn't say another reason to watch this film. There is a scene with Raymond Burr. Yes. That is so like it is so bonkers and it is so shockingly good. It is it's worth it for that scene alone. Absolutely. Now, I like, yeah, I think that not giving away the movie requires me to not talk about a lot of the movie because there's kind of a second half to the movie um, that would be spoiled if I went any further. But anyway, right. it's it's got a lot. It's got a lot of great scenes in that. Raymond Burr is definitely in that moment that you speak of is on one. I love this pick and I'd never seen it before. So I was so grateful that you picked it. Um, I had read. I guess it was last year, maybe earlier this year. Um, I read that book, Furious Love, about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and their marriage and their relationship. And it was just so good. And it made me want to know, like, see everything that she's ever been in. She's the best, man. Ah, uh, so good, this movie. Thanks. Well. <laughs> Mine's a detour. Mine's taking it in a whole other direction. But such a good one. Such a good detour. 
And I'm I'm gonna have to make a federal case. <laughs> like this is this is far from just a casual discussion. I'm like making a case here for why <laughs> the guy in my film is a fuck boy. I think we're we're on the same page though, so at least there's that. Good, good. Well, I'm just like I'm gonna get into it. My movie for the theme of classic movie fuckboy was directed by Stanley Kubrick based on a novel written by Stephen King, which is, you know, one of my specialties. <laughs> and the screenplay was written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson. The movie was released in 1980, and it's called The Shining. Come and play with us, Danny. Forever. And ever. Okay, let me just start. I'm, I'm going to do a one sentence synopsis just off the top of my head. I didn't write it down because I'm like, I'm just going to practice getting into it real quick. An entire small family is upended when the dad takes a job as a caretaker in a remote Colorado resort. And everyone is kind of mildly possessed. But the kid arrives with secret powers that just get stronger when he gets there. Oh, my God. And then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, I forgot to say that shit in mine. <laughs> we can add it in. We can do a pickup. <laughs> we're, we're legally bound by Danielle Anderson to say. Oh, my gosh. That's just like a little little synopsis of, of, of this film, right? And so basically we're dealing with um, a, an incredible cast. Jack Nicholson is playing Jack Torrance. Shelley Duvall plays Wendy Torrance. You've got Scatman Crothers playing Dick Halloran. <laughs> um, it's just it's it's a it's a simple cast, but everyone's an, a rock star in it. And this is a horror film. That is it's more of a thriller, but it's a horror film. And it's really about this kind of descent into madness based on this hotel that is the source of just some incredible supernatural shit going on. Mm -hmm. Right. So Jack, who we learn early on in the film, is a former school teacher who has decided to become a writer, has moved the family from Vermont to Boulder, Colorado. And then now move them even further into isolation by taking a job as the winter caretaker at the Outlook Hotel. And the hotel is actually a real place. It's called the Stanley Hotel. Um, in the beginning of the movie, Ullman, uh, who's kind of the guy that hires Jack, says it was built in 1907. And the hotel was really built in 1907. Uh, people have weddings there. It's wonderful um, and super creepy. Can I ask you a quick question about this? I've always wondered about this. So you used to live in Alaska. I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, what, like, I just assume since you've lived in a remote northern uh, environment that snows all the time. Mm -hmm. Does this happen? Like, do people actually become winter caretakers for places like? Yeah. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Like, I worked in a fishing village in Naknek, which is um, in the Aleutian Island chain. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty remote and there aren't a lot it's not like a big town there's not like a big city center it's kind of people come in to fish and leave and um but there were definitely people hired to like stay at this fishing 
company to make sure during the winter that everything ran okay and that the rooms, you know, were kind of, you know, nothing got too frosty or pipes didn't burst and things like that. So that's, it's definitely a thing. It was also a thing when I lived in Rhode Island, people would caretake for these giant mansion houses in Newport and like live in the guest house during the winter while the family wasn't there. It's a, it's a fucking choice job if you can get it, depending on where you're going to go. <laughs> See, I need to go north of the Mason-Dixon because I just don't know this type of thing. <laughs> you really? Come on up. You could be gardening and hanging out in the guest house and have like, a, you could have your own like four bedroom house on someone's property. All right. Just I'm for like watching their house. <laughs> just making sure their house isn't inundated with bats or whatever while they're gone. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. I was always curious about that. So, yeah, it's a real thing. And in this particular place, you know, again, like in the beginning, they discussed the fact that the reason they closed down in the winter is because it's impossible to get there. It's like this 25 mile stretch of road and it can snow up to 20 feet. So it's like you, you, you're snowbound. You cannot leave. You know, there's this whole scene where Scatman Carruthers, who plays, you know, the cook, he's he's leaving, but he shows them all the food that they're going to need that they could possibly want for the next five months because they can't go to the store. They can't leave the building or the property like physically, geographically prevented. And I also want to say that because this is a film by Stanley Kubrick. You're going to have access to so many academic style podcasts and texts about every single fucking inch of his films. And this ain't it. I'm talking about fuckboys and I'm talking about Jack Torrance and I'm making a case. I I encourage you to go find seek those things out. But all I'm saying is I don't want to get a single email. It's like you forgot to mention this thing in the background of this table in the corner of the I don't give a I, that's not what we're here for. It's not what we're here for today. I, I agreed. And I'll just tell you, I took an entire class about The Shining when yes. I was in grad school where we watched this movie probably like 25 times in the course of the semester. <laughs> and I wrote, I, I was telling you about this. I think I mentioned this in, in an episode in the past, but I actually wrote a paper about it. My final paper for the class. I thought, I thought I lost it, but I actually found it. And oh. the title of, I mean, this is so ridiculous. This is to show you I like, wait. how stupid I am. And when I was in grad school, I was basically like, words, words, words. I don't know what I'm saying. I just need 25 pages. That is what academia is, P.S. Exactly. <laughs> it's not that you're stupid. It's that that's what academia is. This, this is no shade to the professor who professor barker who taught this class she's a wonderful professor and the class was very interesting but i'm just saying generally i'm a when i write i just blah 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 um i the title of it was called the pacific northwest and modernist time traps in the shining and twin peaks damn <laughs> like what could that um, mean can we we need to start a band called modernist time traps <laughs> But anyway, that to your point, you don't need to get in her DMs about this fucking movie. The end. Yeah, just have, just have fun with it. Just go with me on the fuckboy angle and we'll we'll talk about Kubrick again. He'll come up again. Don't worry about it. But we're <laughs> we're just not the we're just not doing a deep dive today because I have I have a little bit of an unorthodox proposition for how to how to make my case and talk about this, which is I'm just going to talk about certain scenes in the film i think even if you haven't seen the movie which you should it is a pretty stunning film um there are 
certain cultural touchstones that I'm sure you know come out of the film. And a lot of that has to do with Danny, Danny Torrance, their little kid. So he's a little kid that's kind of on his big wheel rolling around the hotel, but he definitely has something else happening with him that Scatman Carruthers early on calls the shine and it's basically he's able to have kind of this empathic conversation with people who also have this skill and he can kind of traverse time in terms of what he sees and things he experiences he also has you know and again he's very little kid but he also has um this this imaginary friend as wendy calls it his mom named tony um who's his the clairvoyant uh finger ghost that lives in his mouth and (laughs) sometimes goes to his stomach which i just love that little kid way of explaining like i'm hearing things he's like i'm gonna express it through my finger but it's the guy that lives in my mouth. Like, imagine a kid coming to you and saying that today. Imagine your nephew being like, Aunt Millie. <laughs> I feel like they do things relatively close, but that's very unique, I must say. <laughs> and it's pretty, it's pretty awesome because it's like, this is a kid who is just so alone in this, you know, both the skill set and this, you know, this kind of feeling and his parents don't know what, what to, how to deal with it. And he he feels it in Boulder. But, you know, you know, this kind of doctor comes through at one point because he passes out in the bathroom and she asks him, you know, she asks Wendy, like, has he always had this? Or did it start when you moved? And she's like, no, he's kind of always had it. So you get the feeling that the shine or the shining is something that you're just born with mm-hmm. and you can either do it or you can't. But That is not what we're talking about today. We're talking about (laughs) Jack Torrance. (laughs) Classic movie fuckboy. Scene number one that I want to discuss is the first scene in the movie when he's interviewing for the job. So he goes to the hotel and he meets with this guy named Ullman and is just just his kind of swagger and attitude about it is a little bit off putting because he's kind of like draped in the chair and he's just like, well, I'm a former school teacher, but I have a project I want to, a writing project that I want to outline. So I figured I'd move my entire family to a remote, isolated hotel in the wintry snows of snowland of Colorado so that I could work on my book. And Almond's like, sounds legit. That is a fuckboy move in terms of the classic black cultural sense this guy ain't shit you're gonna tell me that in order for you to work on your fucking book you're gonna give up a career with a pension and move to some haunted ass hotel exactly listen every time i think about this movie i think about jack nicholson like he comes in with a fucking smarmy attitude right and i'm like how much of that is like his character and then how much is that is just him and his vibe like in the culture and i'm just sort of like yeah so he comes in with a dude and you're just sort of like who the fuck is this guy like who Who the fuck do you think you are is like from the jump that is and i've seen this movie so many times Mm -hmm. so many times i remember first watching it when i was like seven because that whole red rum scene like fucked me the fuck up for a long ass time And we had those doors in our house, like that kind of old school door with the cutouts and the and I'm like, I'm I'm going to get murked. (laughs) You you can get an axe through these doors. There's no hope for us. Um, So I've seen this movie several times, but, but that attitude just always catches me off guard. Like 
I don't under, it's not a move that he's making to the benefit of his family. It's a very selfish, entitled move for something that he doesn't even know if he can fucking do. Yeah. He doesn't know if he can write anything. Yeah. It's, and again, you can take me to task because I know this is very contradictory. I just said it a couple episodes ago that I left L.A. partially because it was really hard to write in a one bedroom apartment in the middle of the city. I get it. It's contradictory. But I'm not dragging any motherfuckers with me when I decided to move to the goddamn woods. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not dragging a tiny child who already has psychological issues with me and a wife who's a little bit bugged out by <laughs> this decision. So first fuckboy move. Then I feel like this is an, ex- an extension. This scene is an extension of the first one uh, in terms of the fuckboyness. But as they're driving to the hotel and Danny's in the back seat, and they mention that uh, Wendy and Jack are talking and they mention the Donner party. Yeah. And Danny's like, what's that? And Jack just straight up is like, well, it's a family that was traveling. <laughs> It's a bunch of people that were traveling in the winter and they got snowbound and had to eat each other to survive. They were cannibals. And Wendy's like, um, should you be? And you know, Danny's like, it's cool. I learned about cannibalism on TV. And Jack's like, see, he learned about cannibalism on TV. It's like, take a fucking interest in your kid's life, motherfucker. That is a fuckboy move. That's some ain't shit shit right there. Like, don't be fucking smug to your kid who's trying to learn and be educated about some shit. Like, recognize, read the room, know your audience, God. and maybe treat your kid like he's a fucking kid. Yo, he hasn't even gone nuts yet, and already I'm like, I'm annoyed. Like, Jack Torrance <laughs> from Jump is like, yo, he is smarmy <laughs> and fucking, he can't put up with his family already. And he's about to be locked into a fucking house with them for months. It's like, this is what I mean. It's like that is a fuckboy move to go to this hotel knowing you can barely stand these motherfuckers already. <laughs> like It would have been better off for him to be like, you know what? I got to leave for five months to try this shit out. You guys going to be cool in Boulder where there's like people and schools and stores and shit. <laughs> like, I'll come back and see you when it's done. That would I would have had much more respect for that. Yes. But no, he's dragging him up there. Off they fucking go. They're in this hotel. They've got a dozen jugs of black molasses to fucking survive. Also, I want that scene of Scatman Carruthers just going through the inventory of the fridge and the pantry. I want that as my ringtone. Oh, yeah. Where he's like, you got 50 sirloin steaks, 20 legs of lamb. <laughs> he is just making it sound like... A dream, like the just a delicacy. He's like, you got post toasties, you got this, you got every kind of cereal. I crack up every time I see that scene. Oh um, so we're already annoyed. We're all Jack Torrance is already a fuck boy for dragging his goddamn family <laughs> to this haunted fucking mansion so we can live out his goddamn writer dreams. <laughs> then as, as we get into the movie. Jack starts to get a little, I guess you would call it mildly possessed by the hotel. <laughs> Danny is having visions um, and he's bugged out and can't communicate that. Wendy is doing her best. And there are actually one thing that you should look up and read about. I forget where I read it, but I did read something about how um, Shelley Duvall was pretty terrorized during the filming of this movie. Yeah. And how it led to a lot of her departure from the industry. It's a big story. Yeah, it's a it's a lot. But 
And I, I'm interested in that. I would, I would read about it, especially because I know that there's also, um, I read something about how Kubrick really protected Danny Lloyd, who plays Danny. And because he was a kid, he didn't want him to know he was in like this intense horror movie. Mm-hmm. So, or, or this intense, like, you know, thriller. Um, so he kind of convinced him it was just like a spooky movie and shielded him from a lot of shit. But he did not shield Shelley Duvall from her trauma. Yeah, uh, yeah. So interesting. There's just so much history and so many stories about this film. Mm. And um, it's just kind of one of those like those films. I mean, we've talked about them in the past where it's just sort of like the production history, the director, the people involved, the topic. It's just like, you know, one of those films that has a lot. You could fall down a whole. Yeah. I mean, I took an entire fucking class about it. I mean, it's yeah. it's a it's a. It's there's a lot of meat on that bone. So go in and 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 read all these stories because it's it's fascinating. So dig deep, dig deep. And as we get further into this film and you start to realize that Jack is kind of becoming mildly possessed and he's kind of, you know, he's he's just kind of staring a lot, a lot of staring, like open, open mouth, slack jaw staring, which is never a good sign. Yes. Um, and he's you know, just clicking away on his typewriter. But he's getting his mild possession um, makes him so fucking angry. Yes. Wendy. And this is something else I can't stand. This is another scene I want to talk about. So there's an incident where Danny goes into room 237, which is like the haunted room, so to speak, um, that is at the center of this film. And he comes out and has these marks on his neck. And Shelley Duvall is like, where'd you get those marks? Like what's going on? And she instantly thinks that Jack did it because there's a history of abuse. He had apparently at one point gotten drunk and pulled on Danny's arm too hard and dislocated his shoulder. So she sees these marks and she's like, you fucking did this, Jack. Fuck you. Like, how dare you? So she's already on edge. She's already isolated. She has no one. Now she's trying to protect her child from someone who she thinks is being violent to him. Jack has the goddamn nerve when they're in their room talking about it. And she says, I really think we got to get Danny out of here. Something is wrong. Like something is up. He has the fucking nerve to say to her, I've already let you ruin my life. I'm not going to let you ruin this. This being his attempt to write this book. Mm -mm -mm. This is, again, like just like the way Montgomery Clift went from fuckboy to bad guy, this is a very slippery slope between fuckboy and awful dad. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Because part of like what... Okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to properly communicate this thought, but I'm going to try. Part of what I think the horror of the story is, is that you have this father who takes his family up to the woods to this abandoned house and he slowly becomes like possessed by the house and turns into this monster. Okay. I think that part of the, like to make that effective, you have to communicate that the guy before going to the house was a good dude. Yes. And I don't think they do that very well. I think you, because of what I said before, which is that already like Jack Nicholson comes up, from jumping is like the smarmy artist T wannabe guy 
then it is revealed that he's actually done some shit before any of this happened. So then when I'm like, oh, so he falls down this hole of possession and he turns into this other person. I'm like, I don't know. I think he was that person to begin with. And now yeah. he's got kind of, you know, it got kind of perfected in this house. Yeah. Right. They or just turned this, up the dial. Yeah, exactly. This fucking supernatural shit just helped turn up the dial a little bit because he's already a fuck boy. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> he already ate shit. And then I completely agree. Could not agree with you more. Could not agree. They did not make the case for this being a good enough dude that I buy that the house is the only thing that is keeping him in this dickhead role. Right. Exactly. Then we've got probably the last scene I want to bring up before all the kind of real drama and horror happens. That incredible scene on the staircase where Shelley Duvall is kind of slightly swinging this bat and trying to get him to not come near her. And he's creeping up the stairs. They're both moving very slowly. It really is an incredible scene, um, especially because the way she's waving the bat is in such a realistic, exhausted kind of way. Um, And she's kind of sweating and her hair is like she's just exhausted by this already. And she just is trying to save herself and her kid. And again, Fuckboy Jack Torrance, as she's talking about trying to save their child and get out of this place, and she's like, this is not good for any of us, has the nerve to say, have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought about what I'm going through? I'm sorry. Did your whole family just redirect their lives so that you could be here or not? Is your responsibility and your thoughts and you... Is, is that the only thing that matters in this family? Yes or no? Because I'm going with yes. The fact that you even ended up here is proof of the fact that she's only thinking about your responsibilities and what you have to do. And when she finally stands up and is like, I need to take care of my goddamn kid. He's like, well, what about me? Fuck boy. Yeah. He's such a dick in this scene. Like, <laughs> he's it, such a dick. like and that's the funny thing, too. It's like, like... The funny thing about what we're doing right now is that we're like, so Jack Torrance is one at this point is like one of the most, he's like classic villain in in horror. I mean, when I was in high school, people wore t-shirts of Jack Torrance coming out of the door. Yes. With the here's Johnny thing. It was like, he was like a celebrated bad guy, villain type. But at the same time, like there are moments where you're like, God, he's actually a dick. Like, okay, he's the huge villain of the film. But then there's all these like, oh yeah, he's a dick. He's just a dick too. Like he's a fuck boy, yeah. but also a bad person. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And again, like this, this, this definition of fuck boy that I'm, that I'm utilizing is kind of more towards the guys who are, you know, who just suck and they ain't shit. But there's also in the urban dictionary on the tail end of the definition of fuck boy that they use. It's someone who should not be trusted and is responsible for other people's trust issues. That is Jack Torrance to a goddamn T. Totally. And it's just like, he's just slowly becoming more and more acerbic towards her. He's just like, he's pulling his like, I'm a sarcastic guy, Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. style thing. And it drives me insane because it's just basically like, I get it. I get that this is, but it's also like his character is a dick. And I just, I, there's just an extra level of ugh, uncomfortableness whenever I see this movie and just sort of knowing th- that the Shelley Duvall character is so passive and is so gentle and the, you know, her character is the sort of antithesis to him. And you can kind of maybe 
you could kind of say that her and Danny are basically like they are the passive audience to this energy to this crazy this not it's not just crazy energy but it's also he's you know he's he's like this guy that's kind of self-obsessed you know yes yes like moving your whole family from vermont to boulder for no reason and quitting a job and doing it's all about him all the time and that's not good for any family structure if it's all about one person all the time and i think that it's really what's what's I'm probably heavily influenced by the fact that I recently saw Dr. Sleep for the first time. Mm. And I don't know how that movie was received or what people think about it. But from my opinion, it's a fantastic movie. And it was really interesting because this is a movie, um, Dr. Sleep. It's not really a, a sequel in the traditional sense, but it picks up with Danny Torrance as an adult. And from that film, you get to see a lot of and kind of revisit a lot of the psychosis and a lot of the trauma and horror that he experienced as a child. And I just think it's it's beautifully done. I think that it is it's an interesting movie for all of the reasons that they put into the plot that are modern and current and fresh. But the things that they revisit from this film make to me <laughs> makes what Jack Torrance does more monstrous. It makes him more of a fuck boy than ever before. Yeah. I would check it out. Oh, I can't wait. I, I meant to see it when it came out and then I just didn't. So I'm going to fix that very quickly. It's really good. And Ewan McGregor plays the adult Danny Torrance. Mm, that's a good choice. It's a, it's a great cast. It's like, it's, uh, I just cannot recommend it enough. And, mm. Again, watching that and then watching this again <laughs> just all really compounds it. And I'm I'm definitely biased a little bit because I can't handle seeing kids in traumatic situations in yeah. film. Mm -hmm. But it's just a very interesting cycle. It's an interesting psychological experiment to watch this movie thinking about Jack Torrance as a fuckboy. I, I totally agree. And I but that the best part about is honestly, like when we when we talked about this, I was like <laughs> It is so fucking funny to me to call Jack Torrance a fuckboy just because he's <laughs> he's such a like I said, he's such a legendary villain that right. it's like calling like an evil murderer a fuckboy. It's that thing of just sort of like, oh, we're going to call him by the lesser evil. But he's perpetrated so much worse than just simple right. fuckboyism, I guess. <laughs> but but the point, I think, is more that. If you take the like bad epic end of the movie stuff that he does and you just pay attention to the beginning part of mm -hmm. the little microaggressions and the little things that he does he is a fuck boy he is like a shitty husband and he does even i mean you're gonna say oh yes because he's possessed by this house and he's a he's under a spell and that's why he's a dick i don't actually know if that's entirely i i, I feel like it he was always a dick yeah. and then the house made it just more present and you can tell at the beginning like just the little moments between his inner like the little interactions between him and the family that there's something there there's some kind of like tension there and when you find out that he is trying to be a writer that to me just like kind of adds to the momentum of that because it's basically like, Oh, here's this dude who wants to be like Hemingway or he wants to write this great right. American novel. And he's kind of like, it's at the cost of sort of his family and their, and their lives. And it, it brings up the, the sore point too, that I think that the, 
the fuckboyness of it is rooted in my general dismay about men who feel like their families have prevented them from something. Yes. Um, that kind of never adjust it both in, in character study and in real life that they just never adjust to the idea that they don't necessarily deserve to have everything all the time. That if you have a family and you made that choice, that's okay. You don't just necessarily then get to torment your fucking family because you never climbed Kilimanjaro or whatever. <laughs> like you just the just the very notion of people who can't just kind of go with the choice they made and are constantly holding it against the people in their lives. I can't with that shit. I can't right, because it, it presents this this binary, which is that like you you either have family or you have freedom. Right. Right. Or you have like a creative life or you have a marriage or have a child. Mm-hmm. And it's just that thing where. I think I think men were always trying to make that argument for so long. I mean, this is obviously like within film and TV, but, you know, also maybe in real life, too, where it was basically like the men were acting out because of the obligation of the family and the and and the the wife and everything that they were the source of his inability to be a writer, inability to be creative or whatever. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's just that fucking patriarchal bullshit, right? It's just the thing where it's like, okay. It's a total false binary. And it's my favorite thing about second wave feminism is when women jumped up and were like, yeah, us fucking too. Like, we don't have any freedom and we didn't get to pursue shit. <laughs> so like, what, what are you complaining? At least you get to leave the house and go to work every fucking day. <laughs> Yeah. What if I just want to sit around and smoke cigarettes and read a novel like uh, yeah. you know, Wendy does, Wendy Torrance does? That fucking looks great. Well, uh, listen, you don't have to prove it to me that he's a fuckboy because I already thought he was a fuckboy. <laughs> I obviously think he's a dick. But, you know, and, 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 and maybe people will be in our fucking mentions being like, but he's not a dick. He's just possessed by a force. Whatever. He was a dick in the beginning. He was a he dick. Was. We're all entitled to our opinions. And my opinion is this is not someone to be valorized. This is not a good man who's gone bad. This is a bad man who got worse. (laughs) (laughs) I could not have said it any better. That is literally the perfect way to to describe it. And a good way to end it. I'm, I'm, I'm cool to leave it there. And we will entertain any and all thoughts about Jack Torrance being a fuck boy and Montgomery Clift as George Eastman being a fuck boy uh, in our social media accounts. (laughs) Yes. Which um, if you want to travel to the internet and find us on Instagram and Twitter, we're at I saw pod. Also we do have merch. If you're, you know, into it. The t-shirts are like super soft. I'm not just saying that because I want you to buy our merch. I'm literally saying that because we're both wearing them right now. I love our t-shirts. Literally like the most comfortable <laughs> shirts. I hate to say it. They are. Um, but if you if you want a shirt, if you want a mug, if you want a pin, anything, go to the Exactly Right shop on exactlyrightmedia.com. And this is also a really good point for you to go ahead and stop. And if you go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe or leave us a little review, we would love it. And you can also hear more from us if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium and you can use the promo code SAW, that's S-A-W, for a free month. So why wouldn't you? And do you want to announce next week's films by any chance? I could not be more excited to announce (laughs) next week's films. I know. Uh, 
We want you to try to guess the theme because it makes us laugh. It truly cracks us up. It's a beautiful part of this podcast for us. Our movies next week. And I am going to try to contain my, my excitement for the next seven days until we get to talk about it. Joe versus the Volcano from 1990 and Dante's Peak from 1997. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Guess the theme. Guess the theme. So fun and exciting. I can't wait. Um, oh, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. You were on an episode of My Favorite Murder. I was. I, um, Karen and Georgia, our, our fearless leaders, have decided to take off uh, for June and July on a much needed and much deserved uh, vacation. And they're doing a bunch of guest host spots where they're having people come in and just talk about, you know, what were their favorite stories from the podcast. I picked one from Karen and one from Georgia. They're both from two of the earlier episodes. So it's a good way to listen and kind of catch up on what my favorite murder is all about and look they're the mothership we wouldn't be here without them uh so go give a listen and support and it was really fun to dig back into the history and kind of rediscover some of my favorite uh my favorite stories of theirs amazing yes please please check that out i'm sure you've already heard it but we're just reminding you again if you haven't it's out there yeah the truth is out there just like (laughs) x-files yes well I guess that's it for this week. It was so fun to return to this theme. Thank you so much. Glad you're oh. glad we're back. Glad that we're rejuvenated. More episodes. It's going to be great. I am so excited. I don't want to I don't want to end, but we have to because, you know, we there's only spoilers from here on out. So let's just end on a, on a kick. And just knowing that we get to come back and talk to each other next week is the best. I missed everyone. I missed our producer. I missed our engineer. I just missed (laughs) this whole jam. And I can't wait to show you what closet I'm in next week. Oh my God. I'm excited. This summer is going to be sick. (laughs) Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Ha <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>